Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Virginia Historical Society and another Banner Lecture. I'm Paul Levengood, president of the VHS, and I'm glad to see so many of you here today. As always, I'd like to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, the sign down front tells you. Their support helps make these lectures possible, and we do appreciate that. Now for today's program. The excitement of digging up lost and forgotten history is always a fascinating subject. I know I used to be intrigued by the little bits of pottery and other things that would come to light after a heavy rain at the house in Philadelphia where I grew up. So this is something that I think has always fascinated me. And we're lucky enough today to have two speakers who will share with us their astonishing findings at two of the most important current archaeological sites in Virginia. These are Fairfield Plantation and Weromacomico, which is a mouthful. <laughs> the digs at these sites are revealing new information about colonial planters and the native populations they encountered. Some of the published findings from this work will be on sale in our museum shop for signing after the lecture. David Brown and Thane Harple received bachelor's degrees from William and Mary and master's degrees in historical archaeology from the University of Massachusetts, Boston. During the past decade, they've conducted extensive research on the history and archaeology of Gloucester County, including such properties as Warner Hall, Rosewell, and Fairfield. In addition, they've worked as archaeologists with the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, the College of William and Mary, and George Washington's Mount Vernon. They're currently co-directors of the nonprofit Fairfield Foundation, and they're co-owners of Data Investigations, a cultural resource management firm that assists landowners, nonprofit foundations, and municipalities with their archaeological, architectural, and historic research needs. So if you have those needs, please give them a call. They're founding members of the Werewakomiko Research Group, and will continue research there this summer, along with representatives from our neighbor, the Virginia Department of Historic Resources. I'm delighted that today we have with us the owner of the property on which the Werewakomiko dig is taking place. Bob Ripley, who's sitting here in the front row, and he and his wife Lynn deserve the thanks of all of us who are concerned with documenting Virginia's rich past. I'm very happy to say that this event is another collaboration with our co-sponsors today, the Society of Colonial Wars in Virginia, and I thank them for helping make this lecture possible, especially Peter Broadbent, Ramsey Richardson, and Jay Johnston, who are here today with us. So please join me in welcoming Dave Brown, and Thane Harpole, who will speak to us on Werewakomiko and Fairfield Plantation, Rediscovering the Forgotten Landscapes of Gloucester County. Good afternoon. I hope all of you have had as wonderful a lunch as I did. Um, I guess the... the Speakers for these series get treated to a little snack beforehand, including these absolutely wonderful little uh, purple cupcakes. Um, so if you guys get a chance to go to, I think it's Cochina, Cochina, that's uh, right near here, next time you're down at the Virginia Historical Society, um, absolutely delicious. I'm here today to talk to you about a couple of different sites that I've had the distinct pleasure of being able to work on for the last several years. Um, and by me, I obviously mean myself and Thane Harpole, uh, who's sitting down at the front of the row here. And if you have questions, he's far more knowledgeable about these things than I am, so you can ask him afterwards. Um, but as a single individual, I, I'm hopefully going to represent well 
an extensive amount of research that's taken place on these sites by a number of different individuals. Scholars like Martin Gallivan and Randy Turner and Danielle Murray Langholtz, all of them through the William & Mary or the Department of Historic Resources, and our collaborators at the Werewakomoko Research Group. And in addition to that, the work that Thane and I do at the Fairfield Foundation is, is so much dependent on students, scholars, volunteers, many like yourselves, who come out and work with us every single day. Uh, it's why we do what we do, this interaction with the public and this opportunity that we have to share this information, whether it's hands-on, um, we actually do hands-on work. We have uh, excavations at Fairfield that involve the public, uh, no training necessary, no equipment necessary, uh, plenty of water recommended. Um, but ultimately, us being able to talk with you, to work with you, um, to learn from you is what really is the essence of all of the work that we do and what drives us. So I've been told I can talk about these things for quite some time, and I've actually asked Thane to make sure that I... Uh, keep on target, um, but no better place to start than introducing you to Gloucester County. Uh, many of you know that because it's that place that's just north of Yorktown. Um, it had the largest population in Virginia in the late 17th century. Um, it was one of those counties that was largely forgotten by time, uh, unless, of course, you had a family member who lived there or you had a reason to go to the Middle Peninsula, uh, but it holds in its bounds some of the most amazing history and a lot of it relatively untouched, especially from an archaeologist's point of view. Uh, Thane and myself have been doing work there since we were undergraduates at the College of William & Mary and surprised to find so little of our compatriots willing to pay the toll to go over the bridge and to do work there alongside us. Um, there is also the challenge of having to deal with a county that's lost many of its records through fires in 1821 as well as uh, during the Civil War. But it is our home. Um, and no matter where we move, it will always be our home. And so, again, it is a distinct pleasure to share with you some of our experiences there. As I segue into the actual subjects of this, of this wonderful discussion we'll be having today, um, and I hope it is a discussion. I hope there's some time afterwards where if you have questions, you can interact with Thane and myself. But we really are looking at two magnificent landscapes of power. And by overlooked, we both know that we all know that people have been looking at these buildings, these plantations, uh, these wonderful and amazing sites of such great importance to our history because we know Pocahontas, because we know Powhatan, we know John Smith, and on top of that, we even know of the colonial Virginia gentry, those elite men and women, merchant planters who made up these magnificent plantation homes that form such an amazing part of our identity as Virginians or simply as people who share that identity. Um, I'm a come here. Uh, I'm not from Virginia, but it has been my home and treated me better than any other place I've ever lived. Fairfield and Werewakomoko are not far apart from each other, as you can see on the 1781 map here. Um, Powhatan's capital was located at Purton Bay, just about, I guess, three or four miles northwest of Fairfield, right along the water, and that forms the initial focus of this discussion. The significance of Werewakomoko isn't lost to anyone in this room, all of you being lovers of history, much like myself and Thane. It was the 17th century capital of the Powhatan chiefdom. It was the residence of Powhatan, and most noteworthy because of all of the individuals who had come to Werewakomoko, uh, including the colonists as they began their interactions with Powhatan and the Powhatan Empire um, after the landing at Jamestown in 1607. 
Sadly, there are only four recorded encounters that took place there. And that small amount of information, while it's significantly helped guide us in our excavations over the last five, six years, um, is still frustratingly small. And so we try to milk it like water from the rock. We try to get as much of this information as possible and try to look at it and help us guide what we look at as far as the excavation strategies we undertake. And then as we find and discover more and more new and interesting things, we hope that they are somehow illuminated by the documentation and that somehow that documentation might mean something more because we're able to add this archaeology to it. For the longest time, where Wacomico's location was in, mer- in many ways disputed. Uh, a local tradition had it further down, closer to Gloucester Point. Other individuals believed it would be located in between that Gloucester Point area and where Powhatan's, uh, where, where Wacomico is known to be today. And in all of these cases, despite the veracity of some of the discussion between people who had really staked quite a bit of their own personal identity on those locations, it has kept the idea of Pocahontas, the idea of Powhatan and his empire at the forefront, so that we would not forget, despite its, regardless of its location, how important it is for it to have this element of our history, our shared history, and to make sure that it's shared with other people as generations progress, as schoolchildren uh, come through where Wacomico every summer as the Ripleys have graciously insisted uh, and we've been only too happy to help with. Um, the map that you see over here on your left uh, is a compilation of three maps put together by Randy Turner and others, uh, including the three known early 17th century maps that show where Wacomico's location is. And they're placed in relative scale to a more modern map, which is that fourth in the column as you read from left to right. And what it obviously suggests is that the Werewakomiko location, if not based on, on pure distances, its relative location strongly suggests Purton Bay, which coincides with so many of the other accounts that were listed by John Smith and others who visited the plan, uh, visited this wonderful and amazing village site during the early 17th century. So the maps formed one crucial element of the reason why we believed it would be located there in addition to the historical documentation describing this amazing landscape of converging rivers, or converging creeks, um, marshland, and the environmental conditions that, to a large degree, still persist there today. And it was because of knowing this certainty, after having met Lynn Ripley and Bob Ripley, having seen the amazing collection of material that Lynn Ripley was able to assemble as a landowner only living there from 1996, And I have to pause for just a second and to really focus on her amazing accomplishments. Like many of us, like many of you, we always had an interest in archaeology. And as she was walking along the beach, her and Bob driving around the property and finding small bits of pottery and other things on the ground, first thinking that they would be cutting their dog's feet or in some way um, uh, keeping them from having the wonderful uh, dogs that they have roaming the property freely, It's, it's an amazing spot absolutely magical. They started compiling this extensive collection of Virginia Indian pottery. And Lynn went far beyond simply trying to put it into a box and shoving it somewhere in the back corner of the garage. She looked at it. She studied it. She started separating it, typing it into different types of pottery with different decorations and different tempers. All the projectile points or the arrowheads and spearheads that she found started without any other training, putting them together in both a logical fashion, but as well as any archaeologist would have on their own. And so when we were able to walk in one wonderful day, I think it was back in 2000, 
And we met Bob and Lynn, and we saw this collection. We were in awe because it's like you were talking to an archaeologist. And they knew, in a sense, what they had. I always think in their heart they knew they had something extremely special. And for us to be able to talk with them at a level to start building towards this eventual project that we'd be able to bring these wonderful people into um, made it one of the most significant and memorable parts of my career. And so the Werewakomoku Research Group was formed over the subsequent months and a few years and involves Martin Gallivan and Danielle Murdy Langholz, who I had mentioned before from the College William and Mary, uh, Randy Turner, um, an archaeologist of great renown in this region who's been the Tidewater Regional Office Director for the Department of Historic Resources and has spoken here to the Banner Lecture Series before. He's actually been searching for it since 1976 when he was doing his dissertation but never got permission to come on this specific property. He got to the property to the west, the next property to the west, everything around Purton Bay except for this spot. And to see the look on his face when we were able to show him, to introduce him to Bob and to Lynn, and to know that somebody with, had spent their life searching for this place, to know with such confidence from his mind that we had this location, we were able to undertake a number of steps to kind of move forward with this. And Thane and myself, as parts of the Fairfield Foundation, we were just in many ways happy to be involved. Because as young scholars, it was an amazing experience that will shape our lives. From the very beginning, we envisioned having cooperation with the Virginia Indian community, something that had never been taken on in Virginia before to the scale that we proposed. And so from the very beginning, we, before we announced it to the public, we went to the Virginia Council of Indians. And it was an amazing experience for us. Because as we sat there in a closed session after one of their meetings, all of, the, all of the tension, all of the, all, of the, uh, all of the tension kind of just fell away. All of the excitement for, for them to be able to know that we had discovered something uh, and for them to be involved with it, not at the end, not when we were designing the exhibits, not when we were trying to decide what to do with uh, human remains or something else that we might have discovered along the way, but at the very beginning and asking them to take an active role from that beginning in guiding what we do. It seems like for many of us something that any project would involve. You talk to the descendant communities, you talk to the interested individuals, and you build a consensus. For them, it was unique, something they'd only seen maybe a few times before. Jeff Hantman, a wonderful professor at the University of Virginia, um, had done so with the Monacan to the west of I-95 in that portion of the state. But for, for Indians in this region, it was something that was unique and something that that we were very happy worked and continues to work in such great favor for us. Now, from the beginning, we had this amazing property to take a look at, wonderfully confined by the creeks that you see to the top right of the slide and the bottom left, kind of almost forming a bit of, if I can work the cursor right on here, kind of a bit of an island. Uh, this is slightly lower, but forms pretty much this edge of the peninsula. The photograph here is from the 1950s, 1940s, I think maybe even a little earlier than that, and shows a previous structure um, actually owned by Otis Schuyler Bland, uh, who was uh, one of the congressmen responsible for putting in the Colonial Parkway. So there's a little 20th century uh, history that's uh, uh, wonderfully associated with where Wacomico as well. Um, but you can see this wonderful agricultural property and how beautiful and pristine it is and how very close to this the Ripleys have maintained it um, even to this day. We began by looking to see where exactly the artifacts that Lynn and Bob had found over the years, not just along the beach, but also the ones that might have been found in the fields. 
So we started what archaeologists call a shovel test survey. We put a tiny little hole in the ground, about a foot in diameter, every 50 feet across about 45 acres? I think about 700 holes later, any, some insane amount like that, perhaps a few, a few fewer than that. I tend to exaggerate sometimes. Um, essentially, we found these little pieces of pottery because you'd take the dirt out of the hole and you'd put it through this quarter-inch screen and anything that didn't fit through, you took back to the lab, you washed with a tiny little toothbrush, and then you brought these experts in. And Thane and I had some experience with some things, but bringing in experts in prehistoric pottery allowed us to figure out exactly when these artifacts were made, when they might have broken and when they might have been discarded. And knowing where we found them on the property helped us identify that this property wasn't just the site of Werewakomoko. People had been living here for thousands of years. And after Werewakomoko was abandoned in 1609 as the capital of the Powhatan chiefdom, European settlers came in and made it their homes. Early Americans made it their home. And even Oda Schuyler Bland made it his home. And so respecting the archaeological evidence from all of these periods was significant to us. Maybe not as important as where Wakomoko is today, but perhaps in the future they'll be thanking us for paying attention to everything. And so after, I think, six years of excavation, um, and before we enter this summer's two-week set of excavations, we've uncovered a tremendous amount of information leading us to divide the site up into a number of different components uh, and looking at periods that were occupied here for, for many, many, many generations. Essentially, you have a residential core along the York River in Purton Bay, in which Bob and Lynn have graciously let us dig in their front yards. Um, never the most optimum place for you to do an archaeological excavation, uh, but in this case, uh, very nice of them to let us excavate there for a number of years. For the most part, we've been focusing on this back area here. There's a small area with very few artifacts that seem to separate the residential core from what we're thinking is more of a ceremonial, uh, more of a political center within this settlement. And the interesting thing about this is that we found very, very few artifacts initially for this area of the site at the beginning of the excavation. There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lithics, you know, tiny stone flakes and pieces of pottery and even animal bone that were conglomerated along the front of the property where the residential core was. People had been living there, uh, I think, at least for 1,000, 2,000 years. But what was more significant was actually where there were fewer things found. And I'll explain more as we go into more depth. Looking at the center of the residential core allowed us to take a look at the commoner, look at the people who had been living there in nucleated settlements, in small groups of, plow, of um, uh, small fields located next to homes where individual families or groups of families would be living, extended families. Uh, we were able to open up, as you can see here, small blocks. We took the plowed soils off, looked at the materials within those plowed soils, helped us indicate where we should be looking and looking at even these small little holes that you see here. Normally, a tree hole is the scourge of any good archaeologist, because it's a tree. It's not going to tell us anything like a foundation or a well or a trash pit or even a hearth would tell us. But in this case, it became one of the most precious commodities on site, because it was one of the few features, these deposits of archaeological remains, that were actually intact below the ground surface, in this void where the tree had fallen over, back hundreds and hundreds of years ago prior to Powhatan and any of his descendants, we found this amazing group of materials 
including oyster shell, the earliest domesticated corn in Virginia, beans, squash. We also found beaver, turtle, deer, and an amazing series of ceramics and lithic debris that really told us what this place was like prior to Powhatan having it as his capital of his chiefdom. Now, we may be talking hundreds and hundreds of years before that, but it definitely gave us a better sense of what this place was like during all of its periods. And it was all because we found this tiny little tree hole. Elsewhere along the waterfront, uh, especially adjacent to um, uh, where Bob and Lynn were building a small, uh, building a very nice addition to their home, not necessarily small, but uh, definitely a wonderful place, uh, we found this confusing series of dots and smears. Uh, the key symbols to look at here are the small circles like this, because these tiny little holes in the ground, maybe no more than an inch or two in diameter, are where Virginia Indians had put in posts, saplings, that formed the structural members for their huts. And so in this case, we had a very clear representation of a series of huts that were located even as far back as this small part of, of Bob and Lynn's home. And closer to the waterfront, we were able to find those other key elements of Virginia Indians' everyday life. Everything from what you see up here is a trash pit, not very deep, but that you have to understand that the first couple of first foot and a half of soil has accumulated since that time. Over here, we've actually excavated out what was the better part of a hearth. That's what you can see here. And even here, we found yet another small little tree hole covered up with bits of oyster shell and other trash and debris. And amazingly, the materials that we would find in this area, um, predominantly jasper, that wonderful banana-looking chert material that occasionally you see as cobbles in the stream bed, um, for some reason, they were taking it here to Werewakomoko, where there was no natural source located nearby. We know this. There's a, a wonderful archaeologist at the DHR named Chris Stevenson who did some side work for us, looking at the other core areas where they would find this material and suggesting that, in fact, this material is brought here. It's special. It's for a reason unbeknownst to us, but that we're still trying to find out why. It was brought here, and in this specific location was the focal point for the residents in making stone tools. And despite what we see on most Virginia sites, Virginia is a wonderful agricultural state. Almost every square foot, we joke, has been plowed at some time or another, even the square foot that comes up immediately next to your doorway. In this small instance, we found what was remarkable. We found this nice darker layer underneath the plowed soil above, and this is actually intact. You see, when Virginia plows went through the soil, whether they be the 17th and 18th century horse-drawn or mule-drawn plows, or the more mechanical engineered tractor-driven plows of the, 18th, of the 19th and 20th centuries, it churns up this first foot. It doesn't move the artifacts very wide. Everything's still within 5 to 10 feet, but it does mix it up vertically. And so the rare occasion when we can find this material intact, meaning we found these artifacts exactly where they were dropped, it makes great, allows us the ability to have great certainty in the conclusions we make about why they were using things in this location, their association between tools, huts, lifeways, religious practices, and to have it here at where Wacomico made it all that much more special. Perhaps the one element of where Wacomico that we've become most noteworthy for discovering is a series of two ditches. As people understand Virginia Indian culture in the late 
16th and early 17th century, they associate them with the wonderful drawings of um, John White. Is it John White? Yeah. Um, sorry about that. Uh, and his amazing drawings of Sikatan and other villages in, near the Lost Colony uh, gave us a sense of what we might expect as we're looking for Virginia Indian settlements on the eastern coast, particularly in the mid-Atlantic region uh, and definitely in the Chesapeake and in the areas of North Carolina. What we weren't expecting to find were other elements of what this large ceremony or political compound would have had associated with it, and that's namely these two large ditches. Normally when we see ditches we think, oh, it's a European site, they're used for drainage, or perhaps they're military-related, they're some kind of fortification, or even a boundary ditch showing where one person's property ends and another person's begin. But in this case, it serves a somewhat different function than that. We were led back to looking at the documents that, I, that did show some kind of physical representation of what Werewakomoko looked like at the time of John Smith and Powhatan. And what you can see here, we affectionately have called over the years the double Ds. Essentially, it looks like instead of just having a symbol for some kind of, of residence or some kind of um, uh, village, we in fact have a slightly different illustration that may, much like the fort at Jamestown, which you can see down here, be a more literal translation of what they were witnessing on the ground at that time. You can see it to a different degree here, something, a very different symbol. Um, our, our friends over at Jamestown Preservation, Virginia, um, have sent us these wonderful high-resolution versions of this larger, grainier map. Um, they actually just sent it to us about uh, two months ago, one of their volunteers over in England doing a, a remarkable job in getting these, um, showing us a slightly different version of what we would be what we are seeing here, but essentially showing these two sets of rings going around and a number of dots possibly representing where the residences were in relation to the village. And so when we looked at those lines in the ground, we thought, what could they possibly be? Is it possible that they could have had these ditches at the time of John Smith and time of Powhatan and Pocahontas? We started looking around. We started doing these tiny little trenches. These are about five feet wide, so if you get a sense of scale here, and we started marching around about every 25 feet trying to chase where they were going. And believe me, this took a long time, despite the fact that Bob would get into his uh, big excavator and go out there and help us screen every little bit, last bit of soil, trying to get us to go as quickly as possible because the excitement of learning where these things were was uh, too much to handle sometimes. And even here, you can see an illustration where they actually have an opening between both ditches, suggesting that they are contemporary with each other. Over time, we were able to trace it out along this blue line, significantly far from the residential core, and in an er after an area with very few artifacts, into an area with just a few more Native American artifacts, and starting to see, as you see in these excavations here, opening up larger and larger areas, trying to chase where these ditches were going. The most remarkable find in these ditches Actually, there's two kinds of remarkable finds that we've made out there. The first was that they were almost completely devoid of any later European material culture because one of our colleagues has continuously hounded us to, under, to, to prove to us that these are not European, um, European ditches or, or some kind of landscape feature. And to this day, we found, I think, a total of one or maybe two late 17th or later century European artifacts within these ditches, despite the fact that Europeans were living there at that time with hundreds of thousands of artifacts spread across acres worth of property. 
we know for a fact that these ditches had already been filled in. And so we are very, very certain that they dated to the time of Powhatan. The radiocarbon dates that we retrieved from these range all the way from, I believe, is it 1300 A.D.? all the way up through to 1600 A.D. And the most remarkable find as far as a particular object that was European that we found, we had Ivor Noel Hume, who many of you have enjoyed his work, come out to the site, and he found it remarkable that the small bottom of a case bottle, very similar to the one that you see here, was found at the base of one of these ditches, suggesting that they were open at the time of contact with John Smith, but then not open for much longer, much like we know the... the village was abandoned shortly after 1609. Here is yet another impression, if you can work with me as as fellow archaeologists, seeing the dark stains that you have coming across these trenches. Fairly unremarkable to the the common observer, but placed into context. Um, I remember when uh, Bob brought Joanne Davis out and showed her the full extent of these ditches, how she found them so amazingly remarkable to cover such a large area. And it really changes one's perspective when you visit the property. Most recently, we've been benefited from doing additional excavations inside these ditches. And like any good archaeologist's experience, we had more questions come out of it than answers. What happens when you are satisfied with finding your two double ditches, and then you find a third one? Now, essentially, this was as exciting to us as finding the original ones, because not only did it suggest even more complex site, but it may suggest an even longer history to this place being a a source of power and a source of great significance to the Powhatan Indians and their predecessors. Knowing that these ditches were open at least from 1300 A.D. on into the time of contact with the settlers means that this had a place of prominence within their culture for a significant period of time, that it is a much stronger and much more spiritually significant space, as has been told to us by a number of Virginia Indians. And so you can see here we're slowly beginning to better understand these things, um, including an area back here where we've been doing some larger excavations, looking for patterns of post holes, trying to find those homes that would be located within this area, as opposed to just the ones found, found just to the west of them over here along the residential core. And we were blessed enough to be able to find those. What you can see here is in blue the outline of a series of posts that coincide with what is called a Yehaken, or a Virginia Indian house at the time of Powhatan. Now what you also see are a lot of other dots that don't seem to be put together. Um, I was... a uh, took over excavation of this area from uh, another gentleman named Brian, uh, Brian Heinzman, who had originally found the first pattern along these, these test units here. And we slowly discovered that a number of these lines, particularly the ones going in this direction, are actually tracks from a tractor in the 19th and 20th century. <laughs> Very distinctive, difficult to see on this, but after you have your students for weeks on end excavating very tiny, very shallow features over and over and over again, trying to isolate which ones are from a Virginia Indian structure and which ones were from Farmer Bob, eventually you get very confident in being able to talk about exactly where these are, despite the fact that our graphic shows more of a confusing chaos of dots. The other remarkable aspect to this is its location. A wonderful reference that John Smith makes as he's sitting there, having been captured by the Powhatan and staying there for some time, is he gives the actual number of paces it takes to go from where he had been held captive to the shoreline. 
Now, we know by studying the shoreline, by working with people at VIMS, by consulting with historic maps, the shoreline, while it may have moved 50, 75 feet, a lot of that has been significant to the most recent period. I mean, you can just ask Bob. He used to be able to mow around certain trees. Now those trees have been gone into the York River for a number of years. And that's just since they owned it in 1996. But before that, I think before the 1950s, before the 1940s, what we lost mostly from steamboat traffic and increased weather and hurricanes were the marshy area that, again, if I can laud additional praise to Mr. Ripley, um, has been stopped by the installation of a tremendous amount of riprap and the replanting of marsh grass in order to preserve this wonderful site. A tremendous amount of effort for something that's going to be The rewards will be reaped by us and our children and our children's children for generations to come. But knowing that that shoreline hadn't changed significantly and imagining what it would be like to walk as a man of a slightly shorter stature, uh, John Smith, as you know, not the tallest individual in the world, we tried to recreate the distance back from the waterfront where this location might be. And while I'm not going to claim today that this is actually the structure that he stayed in or that it was a structure that Powhatan stayed in, We do know that from a tiny little corn kernel found in one of those post holes that was from this building, came back with a radiocarbon date of 1600. That's about as good as you could possibly get to know that this building was standing at the time of John Smith. Equally remarkable, well, let's not say equally remarkable, but still noteworthy, you can see these red outlines. Um, The colonial occupation that came in thereafter found this place equally useful for storage and other means. Uh, this is actually a, a early, excuse me, a late 17th century barn or other structure, and a second one back here. The edge of the field is here, and then it drops down into a lower area. So we're, we're thinking of this area as possibly being the very kind of back of that um, political and religious area. Now, maps haven't been um, completely relegated to that uh, small little illustration in their comparisons. Um, and while we know there are many differences between the Vir- Virginia Indian tribes and uh, those of, of eastern North Carolina. Um, this map of Sikatan, showing a, what they called a town or Indian village, does have some very similar characteristics to what we've discovered so far. And it could be as simply as saying the, the location of the rivers versus how they place the villages and the cornfields and ultimately these ceremonial areas. What it's telling us today is that as we look at other Virginia Indian sites, as we look to try to preserve them with easements and other protective measures, and as archaeologists go in and excavate them, that it's important to look beyond just where everyone was throwing their trash, particularly along the waterfront, but even more so to go back into the back edges of the fields. I think the reason we haven't found many ceremonial or political areas is that, to be honest, we got very lucky at Werewakomoko. We got very lucky that we had the impetus to look not just at the areas where most of the artifacts were found, but to look beyond that. And our reward has been finding one of the most, if not the most significant site for this period on the east coast of the United States, along with Jamestown as as a type of twin. And so as I leave where Wacomico, you can see today, there's this amazing property that for many generations to come because of the Ripley's, because of the work of the Department of Historic Resources, the College of William and Mary, and and the Fairfield Foundation teaming together to assist them, um, we've been blessed to know that this, this wonderful property here is going to be able to tell that story for generations to come. Now, a different story, one that I'm a bit more intimately involved with, is that of Fairfield. 
Um, as many of you drive around Virginia, you'd still relish that open plowed field, the forested areas that we see that still remind us of our rural character, of that identity that we hold so close and near to our own hearts. We ble- were blessed in 1996 to be, a dr- to be invited to this site uh, by another local individual who had been trying to preserve it for years before us. And it was simply this. It was this plowed field. And at the center of the plowed field right here in a ring of trees was an old ruin. And to any passers-by, it wouldn't bring any much attention. The, the ruin doesn't stand much higher than your knees if you get up right close to it. But the wonderful part of this is that it was completely pristine. Nothing had happened here in the 20th century to any great degree. There was a tenant farmer who lived nearby in the 1930s, a very small site. But there was no indoor plumbing, there was no power lines, there were no anything else that went along with this. And when Thane and I were introduced to it, we dreamed that one day we would return here and be able to excavate at a site that was so wonderfully preserved and to be able to share that experience with people in a way that didn't require them to close their eyes and imagine that trailer park not being there. But instead, to be able to say, look, you know, this is the colonial experience. And so in 2000, myself and Thane Harpole were able to visit with a few people, including Charlie Bryan here at the Virginia Historical Society, and to pitch an idea that was brought to us. And through the, the wonderful works of a man named Harry Wasson, um, who had started the Virginia Living Museum back in the 1960s and wanted to give back to his community in Gloucester County for its 350th anniversary, we came to the decision to, to look towards Fairfield as being that way to give back to the community. To talk about this plantation, its role, the role of its population during the 17th, 18th, 19th century, even its prehistoric population that was here before. Not as significant in numbers or in historical value as to what we see at Werewakomoko, but still a part of our history that we cannot ignore. And so part two of my presentation deals primarily with this other plantation, uh, this home of the Burrow family. Now, many of you may not have ever heard of Fairfield before. You wouldn't be the first people I'd seen who'd said that. Um, but most of you would know of a number of people who had come from this place and started other plantations nearby. Carter's Grove, the man who built Carter's Grove, born at Fairfield. Kings Mill, the man who built Kings Mill, now where Anheuser-Busch has their wonderful planned unit development, born at Fairfield. Um, Carter Hall in Clark County. There's a number of borough family members who went on to bigger and better things, and to a large degree, Fairfield became lost to the, pa- to the passage of time, except for these wonderful photographs. And I believe this one in particular is in the collections of the Virginia Historical Society, who granted us remarkable and wonderful permission to be able to incorporate it into a number of the activities and publications that we've done. It has these remarkable chimney stacks, And it just evokes that sense of early Virginia grandeur that we all find so romantic and wonderful and so complex in its history. In fact, Fairfield benefits from having a grand total of six known historic photos, um, which we're constantly torn between one being very happy about because it shows every angle of the building and then very sad about because particularly this tree makes it so very difficult to see some of the architectural elements behind it um, and to be so certain about our conclusions. But it's this remarkable building that has inspired Thane and I when we weren't working at Werewakomoko um, to look at the, ha- the, the past of Gloucester County and to try to share that with the community. All of these are taken in the late 19th century before it burned. Um, Fairfield burns in 1897. 
when we were first introduced to Fairfield, we had known about other architectural historians who had fallen in love with this building and wanted to share it with the public. Architectural historians like Henry Chanley Foreman, uh, Waterman and Barrows, um, and a number of others. Uh, there was one remarkable individual who wrote an article in the Richmond Times-Dispatch um, calling Fairfield the architectural enigma, talking about how it could possibly be that missing link between the architecture that we see at Bacon's Castle and in the mid-17th century and creeping on into the late late 17th century, and then connecting it with those grand, magnificent Georgian mansions of the early 18th century, like Rosewell, Carter's Grove, uh, Shirley, the Nelson House in Yorktown, these absolutely wonderful places. And to this day, we think that that architectural historian is correct. This holds, because of its date of construction, a great amount of information that while it may not have been the most successful expression of elite architecture Virginia has ever seen, that was probably about a mile and a half away at Rosewell. Um, it is a very important element of it. You see, Lewis Burrell II had been raised on this property, and when he decided to undertake this property, he had just come into a significant amount of wealth because he had married well. Uh, his wife, Abigail Burrell, um, was the only descendant of Nathaniel Bacon the Elder, not the rebel, but the elder, one of the wealthiest men in the colony. And so all of Bacon's money when he passed on and his land, all went to Abigail and through Abigail went to Louis II. And he became one of the most prominent individuals within the colony. And his design was to build this structure, this originally a T-shaped structure. What you can see here in the dark outline is the initial pattern of the house built in 1694. We know so, not because of some wonderful historic document, but because up on that chimney were the letters L-A-B and 1694. One of the most amazing gifts any archaeologist could ever receive, much less historian, oral historian, genealogist. These are just the amazing coincidences that we've been involved with in our careers. And so what you see here is, is kind of a sum total knowledge of what we understand the building to have been from this eventually growing out into a T-shaped form and showing that it, it alternated in the rooms and in the size. I mean, it was a tremendously large building on the outside, at least from three perspectives. You can see the shaft of the T, if you will, is quite narrow. It's only about 20 feet wide. And so it was wonderful, wonderful at facilitating the breeze coming through one side leading to the opposite, the kind of air conditioning of the colonial period. But at the same time, it was very tall. It was perhaps one of the tallest buildings, maybe second only to that of uh, Arlington on the eastern shore that was built in the 1670s by the Custis family that was three and a half stories tall. And so this remarkable expression would have been as intimidating to any commoner who would come up to it as it was to any elite member of the gentry as this amazing expression of, of hybrid tastes, of the Bacon's Castle Jacobean architectural styles that you see of the 1660s, 1670s, and 1680s, and this kind of new, interesting look of symmetry and massive design that you see in the Georgian movement that would be coming soon thereafter. And for any of you who ever think that our high school students aren't doing well with what their studies are today, I'd like you to take a look at this. This was put together by a high school student. And it wasn't done recently. Recently, there's amazing work on computers. With, there's a SketchUp tool done by Google and a number of other different computer programs that make this much easier than it was. But this was done back in 2003 uh, a grant funded by the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities, one of the best organizations we have here in the state shows and demonstrates to you what Fairfield looked like at its different periods of evolution. Initially, you see this 
very stubby T-shaped building. By the 17-teens, it's definitely got this extended wing off the back. And then, sadly, in the 18, uh, I think it's 1839, 1840, um, for some reason, we lose the wing. And it's still a mystery to us exactly why. But it appears that for some reason it was taken down and it left this L-shaped building, which, believe me, it drove architectural historians bonkers. They were trying to grapple with exactly what this L-shaped building was. They'd only seen two other L-shaped buildings, and they were, they were trying to figure out, did this part come first, and then that part, or this part, and then that part? And when we finally did the excavations and found out it was a T-shaped building, it was, there was only one or two people who had ever, ever even hypothesized that. And um, so we can never quite claim that we discovered how its original design was there, but uh, we can claim the, the discovery of its certainty. So again, you see this remarkable design showing you what Fairfield would have looked like around 1850, um, on the left around 1720. Truly a magnificent building. The only one with diagonally set chimney stacks and triples, as well as double sets, as you see off the back. I mean, it has a number of wonderful architectural superlatives, some of those that will bore you to tears. In fact, Fairfield has one of Colonial Virginia's earliest cellar vent holes. Impressive. You'd think that the funding would just be coming pouring out to us for having discovered that. Sadly, we have not met many members of the Cellar Vent Hole Society of America, but anybody willing to start a branch in the area, we have a, a great field trip for you. In fact, most of the excavations that we do are public-oriented. It's something that we're allowed to do out here that we can't do at Wacomico because Fairfield is not a private residence. Fairfield is in the middle of, a public, of an open field, and the owner of Fairfield has been gracious enough for us to be able to go ahead and to conduct these excavations with everyone from elder hostel groups to brownies and, um, what's below a brownie? Daisies. Um, we brought, brought Boy Scouts out, by and large, even though I was a Boy Scout, we prefer brownies. Um, <laughs> brownies seem to be a bit more prepared, sadly. Um, we bring hundreds and hundreds of school children from uh, from Gloucester, from the College of William & Mary, from the local su- surrounding school systems. We're particularly proud of our volunteer program. Um, the last few years, we've averaged around 4,000 volunteer hours. Uh, and for a staff of myself, Thane, and Meredith Mahoney, who couldn't be here today, um, it's a, quite a difficult thing to juggle when you have 4,000 volunteer hours. Um, but it's the reason why we do what we do. Uh, in particular, there's a gentleman here named Andy Kincaid, who's uh, part of the Archaeological Society of Virginia's certification program, and uh, lives in Virginia Beach, commutes an hour and a half to get to Fairfield each way, and has been working there pretty much every single weekend for a year and a half. Absolutely amazing individual, soaks things up like a sponge, and all of this rodent burrow, this is sadness for him. He's excavating the front facade of the house, and everything was smooth and crisp and clean, and he had all of these scholars like Kerry Carson at Colonial Williamsburg and Carl Lounsbury and Willie Graham, you know, esteemed scholars of colonial architecture, desperate to find his discoveries. And then he finally got to the end part here, and um, the moles and the gophers and the groundhogs had just churned it up to bits. But it's what we experience in archaeology. We persevere. We find these amazing little stains in the ground. You can see this dark stain coming down here. That's where a post was. In this case, a post associated with a fence line that'll become a little bit more noteworthy in in a second here. Some of the elements of Fairfield's landscape that we've been trying to highlight, we've been trying to get away from just the manor house. The manor house 
it can sell itself. When we want to talk about looking beyond the manor house, we need to start looking at landscape in a way that really connects people to not just the area, the acreage immediately adjacent with all of that brick rubble, but everyone from the community all the way out to Route 17, which is not very far from this house. 1781 map by the French in the background. You can see there's a tiny little marker there. It's not marked as anything in particular, but we know it was Fairfield, showing two roads leaving the plantation. Wonderfully, in this aerial photograph, and you can just nod if you can't see it, because I've been trying to convince people of this for years, but for some reason only Thane and I can sometimes see it, there's a slight different tone in the field as you come closer and then emerging off into the distance. This road that we've actually traced with more evidence off into the forest where you have deep road cuts where people had traveled in the 18th and 19th century locks in fairly well with the cardinal directions of Fairfield itself, not of the compass. Um, Fairfield's a little offset so as to take advantage of the cross breeze and of the, the wonderful environment that's around it. That you can see from this older uh, geological survey map that one of the roads would have gone directly up here to the mill. This is where Burroughs Mill was located as early as 1680, but also extends along the driveway that still is there today. Now, if one was to go ahead and extend that driveway in a perfect line, it's absolutely amazing and cannot be coincidental that it leads directly to Abingdon Church. Now, the Abingdon Church that's there today is built in 1755, I believe, and is one of the most magnificent colonial churches that you can see, um, second only to perhaps Christ Church on the Northern Neck. But immediately adjacent to that church, we had the opportunity to investigate and confirm the location of the earlier church, one that William Byrd referred to as the most amazing church in the colony in the early, early 18th century, the 17 aughts. The Burroughs had given the silver in 1703, and were completely and in, in, entirely entranced within the parish structure for the community. So it's not beyond the realm of reason to suggest that their home had a direct line to God, if you will. Um, but in many ways, this is what connects us with the actual wonderful complexity of landscape at this time. We think about the most amazing landscapes that you would see in pattern books, um, everything from Versailles to the English gardens of the, of the late 17th and early 18th centuries in England. And it's difficult sometimes to imagine that they would have been replicated in any significant fashion in the New World. And yet there are elements that do suggest that. And if you want to go to Virginia Historical Society's website, you can see uh, they have an online exhibit that focuses on this map of Westover over on the James River. And what it does is it focuses and shows you these two, three allays of trees that come off radiating from the center house, along with another of, an, a number of other features associated with that plantation landscape, noteworthy enough to translate onto a map of predominantly legal standing. But you can see some similarities in design that people are putting forward, integrating the tobacco fields along with this kind of masterful control over the environment that really shows you what kind of world these people were living in. These are two examples, contemporary examples, that both William Byrd as well as Lewis Burl at Fairfield might have seen flipping through books that were here in the colony during that period of design. And while completely massive and the result of hundreds of workers working and maintaining them for generations and having them evolve, you can see some similarities. I'm not making a grand claim here. I'm just trying to connect these dots to show that Virginia's landscape was something more massive and more impressive than perhaps any of us really truly appreciate, although I'm sure some of the people in this here 
room definitely appreciate, have been thinking about this idea for some time. And so we looked beyond the manor house. We did that same little series of shovel tests in the ground, those little holes every 50 feet, except when we did it, we did it over a slightly larger area and about two and a half months of digging, uh, about 1,300 of these test holes, finding tiny little pieces of brick and pipe stems and pottery and then putting them together in these highly confusing maps. Well, I'm not asking you to truly understand archaeology uh, in the sense of trying to understand exactly what all of these symbols mean. Basically, it's a map I'm trying to demonstrate where a lot of stuff is. In this case, the largest amount of brick, the largest amount of window glass, and in this case, an imported pink sandstone. Even down here, you see the different types of nails that we become familiar with in different periods, from the wrought nails of the 17th and 18th century, the cut nails that come in at the end of the 18th and early 19th century, and even the wire nails that we all commonly use to this day, showing you that Fairfield, as well as where Wacomico, were constantly evolving landscapes. And this is perhaps one of the simplest slides, but the one that has gotten uh, quite a few people excited because it talks about how this plantation landscape has changed but it uses a very small amount of material in order to do it. Basically, we look at trash as something that was deposited around you at any time in this period. So you're not taking your trash out to the landfill. You're not taking your trash to a specific place. You're basically throwing the majority of it next to your house. And in this case, we have artifacts from particular periods. For instance, this early period here, which corresponds to these owners. We know that their trash indicates where they were living, working, and doing things. You can see here there's just a few pieces, maybe one or two up here, suggesting maybe an outer quarter, not too far from the house, where they had slaves and other workers during that period when slavery was still taking a foothold within the colony. Over here you see the firmly entrenched gentry of the 18th century leading up right to and through the period of the Revolution. Not a significant amount of change, still within a relatively small area. Perhaps what is most significant is what happens after the Burrell family leaves. You see, the Burrells were definitely one of Virginia's most prestigious families. Everything from uh, the early Burrells, who were politically entrenched with the Ludwells, the Tollivers, all of Virginia's first families. Even Nathaniel Burrell was married to Robert King Carter's eldest daughter, taking the two wealthiest, two of the wealthiest families, definitely one, the Carters, the wealthiest family, and another, and bringing them together in the the greatest sign of both love as well as uh, political and social networking. But later on, we have uh, Louis Burrell, the first um, grandson of Louis Burrell II. Uh, There was a name in between. We all know that when you name people too often, then you take a break, and then cousins name them the same. It gets really confusing. We have at least four Louis Burrells living at the same time, and it becomes very confusing. Um, So uh, you'll have to confuse our conventions We have to separate from Burles of Kingsmill and Burles of York County and Burles of Carter Creek. Essentially, what you see here is Louis Burrell acting governor of the colony in 1751. When the Fry Jefferson map was approved, he was there. When the Cherokee delegation came to Williamsburg, he was there. Not there for very long, but there long enough to have put his stamp on the colony. And so this tremendous family went into a tremendous amount of debt. And they waged heavily that the American forces would somehow win the revolution. And sadly, didn't survive to see it. Because he had not... Louis Burrell, the last of the name to truly have control of Fairfield, sadly died right at the beginning of the revolution. 
and his children were not of the age to be able to take on for themselves a prominent role and to take up that borough banner and move it forward. They all moved over to Rosewell, and luckily the Page family took very good care of them, despite the fact that the Page recorded that they were all brats. Um, a little tidbit to history that we should not forget. But essentially, another prominent family moved in. And this wasn't a prominent family in the sense of the first families of Virginia, but prominent in the sense of merchants. Merchants and planters, they had owned plantations nearby, but the Thruston family had lived in Yorktown and Gloucester Point since before the mid-18th century. And Robert Thruston comes in, uh, I think he's the third son of the family, um, some of his siblings, uh, Charles Min Thruston, would be, what was, I think his name was like the fighting reverend during the Revolutionary War, very prominent. Um, Robert Thruston purchased Fairfield, and essentially it went from a huge plantation of over 7,000 acres to the Fairfield that would later become what, what in the 19th century was known as a tiny 500 acres. Still, I would love to have a 500-acre plantation, don't get me wrong, but 7,000 acres is almost beyond comprehension. And during that time is when the plantation population around the core explodes. You can see how such a significant change would take place. Um, right here you see Fairfield in the, after the Revolution and then before the Revolution. For the most part, connecting almost the Mobjack Bay to the, York, to the York River. So that significant shrinkage, strangely, didn't coincide with a significant shrinkage in the slave population. So where would you put all of those slaves? And at the same time, you also saw a significant transition towards, instead of tobacco, mixed grains and livestock. Many of you would probably not think of Gloucester County as being one of the largest cattle-raising parts of the United States at that time. But in fact, the boroughs of Fairfield gave, I think it was 4,000 head of cattle to the Revolutionary Army during the war, a significant amount, and pretty much depleted their entire store. What we look at during that transition where the Thrustons now have slaves and there are a tremendous number of slaves in such a small area, we're looking at African Americans on a plantation that have experienced a significant change in their life. Some have been brought in, some have been sold, and so we look at the material culture from their predecessors and from them to better understand what their lives were like, looking at the entire population what we have here is another one of those wonderful archaeological slides that can be so difficult to read. Basically, we have a small subfloor pit. This is about three feet long and maybe a foot wide. But entire, at the bottom of this pit, along with other trash, but specifically we have this small group of artifacts. And this is related, as best as we can tell, to the enslaved Africans living on the plantation in the early 18th century. So a, a very unique find indeed. And we have a selection of materials that tells you kind of a prototypical glimpse. These, these materials have been found at other do, better documented slave quarters, uh, the House for Families at Mount Vernon, uh, at Monticello, at Utopia site over at Kings Mill. Uh, essentially, everything from scissors and needles, uh, beads, so there could be some tailoring repair work going on. Uh, we have gunflints as well as lead shot, knowing that they were actively hunting. Um, we have small pieces of pottery, including fine Chinese porcelain. We also have a slate pencil, suggesting that they were also reading, writing, or doing some kind of a sim simple um, or perhaps complex uh, record-keeping. Uh, we have a strange glob 
kind of a cube of metal that we don't quite understand. Always nice to have something that you don't understand to go along with these things. To give you a sense of reference, this is a nine-inch long nail or spike. You see these cowrie shells uh, that were imported into Virginia, probably brought by slaves or slave traders, and the backs have been carved off. Here's one of the backs that have been carved off, saying that they're actually manufacturing these and integrating them into clothing there at the plantation. And in particular, you have this strange-shaped bone here, which is a raccoon baculum or penis bone. And essentially, when you see that, it makes you start to wonder exactly what kind of significance something like this might have. We've been blessed at having the cooperation of the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation's Faunal Archaeological Lab and Joanne Bowen. They look exclusively at animal bone. They have analyzed this pit, all the material in the plowed soil, and three other major pits immediately adjacent to it. You don't know how much, be- how much uh, raccoon bone was found in all of those other pits? Zero. This has a significance, not because it's part of the leftovers nobody wanted to eat, but because it holds some kind of other significance, and it was one of the most important lessons that I've learned as an archaeologist. Because when we talk about something like that, we think fertility, we think of virility, we think of cosmology, some kind of African religion that has come over, uh, had to survive the, the amazingly horrendous Middle Passage. And at the same time, a hunter from, uh, what is it, not Wakefield, oh, Franklin County, comes up to us and says, I stir my coffee with one of those. <laughs> and it's amusing, and I mean, I, I say that in order to present a, a bit of a chuckle to all of you here, but the essential element of this is that archaeology is all about the context in which we find these things. In any other context, I could actively believe that perhaps somebody was, was resting that on the side of a styrofoam cup as they're going out and hunting in the morning. <laughs> but archaeologists have this power to assign meaning and significance to things, and it, it is our responsibility not to exceed that which we have been given that power. Our, our responsibility is to place things within context. Within this context, it's very striking and very important element of African-American material culture one that we are still grappling with how to interpret. We're blessed, as I said before, with a number of other large features nearby that give us not only an indication of what African-American life was like, but because this slave quarter is located so close to the manor house, some of these pits are filled in with materials of renovations and things connected with the manor house. So you constantly have this give and take between the enslaved population and their material world and the ruling population and their material world, particularly their architecture. And so we're seeing everything from plaster and animal bone from meals that are being prepared for both groups or buildings that are being lived in by both groups. This is actually the foundation here in the background of the manor house. This is only about 75 feet away and very rare. But occasionally we have these smaller stories that come out of this. Um, we went ahead and bisect these features, turning them into quarters, and we, we only take half out because the rest of the other half, we figure an archaeologist in the future is going to be smarter than we are. It's going to be better prepared than we are. And if we leave that for them, we will all be better beneficiaries of that knowledge. In this case, we got a little lucky and a little unlucky because the center of the, test of the quartering is right here. And this is the dog's head, and this is the rest of his body. <laughs> we were able to recover him or her. This is a small, maybe one, two, three-year-old puppy. We're not quite sure. Um, And essentially, what we have here is 
a little part of life that's hardly ever talked about, whether it's a pet, whether it's just uh, a wild dog that was in the, in the neighborhood at the time. Um, essentially, it gives us a glimpse into the material life that's it's far different than what we normally read in the books. Why he was buried there, we don't quite know. We find other pits. This is just part of the, the lecture where I get to show some cool stuff off because that is our purview as archaeologists. So as we excavated down, we found this what was once a complete thrown away for some reason we don't understand. Maybe the handle was broken off, a large Fulham stoneware jug, and beneath it finding fragments of wine bottle bases and other wine bottle bases, bricks, and other things. At the very top of this feature, we found both a pitchfork as well as um, a copper watering spout suggesting that perhaps they were associated with the massive formal garden that was located about 100 yards away from this residence. Sadly, that I don't have enough time to get into today because I feel I'm probably going over just a little bit already, but I'm getting near to the end, so I appreciate your patience. Um, and basically, we've played connect the dots with a number of different elements here to try to understand how complex the slave quarter is, who is living here, when, and why. We've had a lot of assistance from folks at the uh, Thomas Jefferson's Monticello, uh, including looking at their digital archaeological archive of comparative slavery, which combines slave quarters from Virginia with, woes, with those in Maryland, uh, in South Carolina, in Jamaica, in Nevis. Um, so you can take a look at some of the materials we find there online. And then essentially you can stay tuned with us as we continue excavations at both of these amazing sites, where Wacomico and Fairfield. Because as much as I love this slide, because it kind of gives you a sense of what we've found so far, so very different than the landscape that you see there today, this is ever-changing. We know that this excavation area here will yield quite a lot of information this summer. We've just been waiting for the right time to be able to go there. We're planning to put a large protective structure over the house. Nothing grand, more of a pole barn set, but something that would not only give you a sense for place and for space, but protect the excavations and the ruins as small as they are, as close to the ground as they are, as we can, so that we can then bring people out to what we will hope, hopefully make one day into uh, Virginia's first archaeological park. Like Jamestown, where you see the most, some of the most amazing discoveries on an everyday basis as they're excavating through during the summer, we'd like to create an experience that is specifically dedicated to archaeology one that brings people in under professional supervision and allows them to have that initial experience that got so many of us interested in archaeology, and some of us, myself, Thane, um, to want to be an archaeologist uh, despite its uh, poor earning potential. Um, High job satisfaction rate. Um, Wanted to be an archaeologist since we were kids. And by involving the public in a hands-on way, but in a controlled and professional environment, We hope to spur people on towards these concepts of preservation, these concepts where we can see this as an integral part of what we do on an everyday basis because it's part of education. I was lousy in school until I realized that I would learn better by doing, by feeling, by touching than I could by specifically reading books, although I have to read a lot of books now too. Um, I still like pictures. Uh, But our goal one day is to make that a reality, to make Fairfield into one of these unique cultural attractions that we have in the state of Virginia to complement the wonderful places like where Wacomico and Jamestown, Williamsburg and Yorktown, everywhere across our wonderful state. And so it is with my pleasure that I thank you for your, for your wonderful patience uh, and your insight. And uh, hopefully there will be a few copies left if you'd like. We have the Archaeology Month poster of Fairfield over on uh, display as well as um, 
uh, I think it's for free, um, out in the lobby, so don't all go running at once. Um, We have extra copies. If you need them, just give us your name and number, and we'll make sure they get to you. Um, But we're both on the web, uh, including a wonderful website for where Wacomico shows you some of the stuff we've been doing. It hasn't been updated this year, but we're hoping to do some of that as the days progress. And again, um, thank you very much for your attention. This has been an honor. Thank you.